This weekend, the Institute of Ideas Academy will take place at Y Boston Lakes of Bedfordshire. This week's podcast comes from our 2013 lecture archive and is called Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the founder of the Sciences of Man. The lecture is delivered by Professor Timothy O'Hagan and is introduced by Claire Fox. Welcome to this plenary lecture on uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, founder of the Sciences of Man. We're delighted to have um, Timothy O'Hagan as our lecturer. Timothy is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia uh, with a first degree in Classics, Philosophy and Ancient History and he's a graduate student who attended the Soviet Studies Institute at Glasgow University and then at the École Normale Supérieure in Paris and his doctoral dissertation was on Karl Marx's theory of history. Tim has published extensively on topics in political and legal philosophy and in the history of European philosophy. In recent years, the focus of his research has been the Age of Enlightenment and, in particular, the life and work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And his book, Rousseau in the Routledge Arguments of the Philosophers series, has received much critical attention. Um, I'd just like to say, on behalf of the Institute of Ideas, that we were delighted that you accepted the invitation to come, Tim. We're delighted you're here, and it's a great honour that you're giving this lecture. So can we give him a big welcome, please? Well, Claire has given me the most honorific uh, uh, welcome, but I can assure you the, the honour is entirely uh, mine to be, to be invited to, to this distinguished uh, occasion, and I'm extremely grateful to Claire and indeed to, to her colleagues uh, in the Institute, Angus and and the rest to organize the whole thing uh, with such brilliance. And, um, well, I'm just uh, absolutely delighted to be here, and uh, I'm just uh, delighted to see your, your large uh, presence here, uh, showing that you are still alive and more or less kicking. I'd like to think that there's going to be a rather different take on some material that I, I, I have written about before on, on quite a lot of occasions. And... Um, in particular, I'm really going to try to think about how uh, Rousseau presents us, us with two, as it were, experimental models of how to get to some notion of human nature. I've been attending um, some of the literature lectures and some of the other absolutely fascinating things that have been going on uh, in these meetings. But uh, I think that we must remember also that there is an element that interests us, which is that of science. And in particular, when it comes to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, this idea from Claude Lévi-Strauss that Rousseau was founder of the sciences of man, although it may sound somewhat exaggerated uh, in the great scheme of things, I think that if not the founder of the sciences of man, he at least has some claim to really quite serious originality in his great thought experiments which he conducts, which are, I think, of an extraordinary le level of rigour. And I'm going to talk about two of them, the one that Lévi-Strauss was so intrigued by himself, the discourse on the origin of inequality among men, this great text from 1755, um, and then much more briefly at the end, because I think not very many of you have read it, from his educational treatise, The Emile of 1762. And these uh, present us with two 
as it were, thought experiments, experiments which uh, are supposed to give us an access to human nature in a way that had not been done in quite this same way before and which I think have an originality that is really very striking and in which Rousseau can be seen as anticipating work that didn't really mature until a century later um, when we reached the age of Darwin on the one hand and uh, Karl Marx on the other. So let's then plunge straight in. Let's plunge into the uh, discourse on the origin of inequality. Um, And the uh, little set of extracts you've got on your seats, the discourse on the origin of inequality was the Rousseau's answer to a prize essay question um, set by the Academy of uh, Dijon, which you'll see in extract number uh, two there, what is the origin of inequality among men and whether it is authorised by natural law. Uh, Rousseau only turns himself to the second part of the question at a very brief moment at the end of the uh, discourse, but um, uh, the the answer has become pretty clear by the time we, we reach that point, and so he answers that bit pretty snappily. It's the earlier part that I think is um, interesting for our purposes because in order to answer this question, Rousseau uh, says we have to answer a still deeper one. And that's the deeper question at extract number three, which you'll see how can the source of inequality among men be known uh, unless one begins by knowing man uh, men themselves. There's a sort of, uh, even in English, there's a sort of exquisite directness and uh, clarity, I think, about uh, Rousseau's uh, writing. Uh, and as he goes on, and how will a man uh, manage to see himself uh, as nature uh, formed him um, through uh, all the changes? Um, that the sequence of times and uh, uh, sequence of times and things uh, must have produced in his original uh, uh, constitution, and how can we separate um, what he gets uh, from his own what he gets from his own stock from what circumstances and uh, the and uh, his progress um, have added to and uh, changed in his uh, primitive state. That's the, the core question that Rousseau sets himself to answer. And he illustrates it, and if you've read the second discourse, you'll see the illustration in the, uh, the, the image of the statue of Glaucus, which uh, this uh, beautiful statue, which has become encrusted with uh, uh, barnacles and all kinds of detritus over time, and uh, this, uh, uh, this progress of time has now rendered the statue, as he says, almost unrecognisable. It's an interesting thing to note in passing, if any of you um, have been reading Plato, that uh, 
Plato also uses the statue of Glaucus in his Republic um, for a not dissimilar purpose, although it's, it's uh, rather different. Uh, uh, Plato doesn't have the notion of time, which Rousseau has, but he also uses this, this image, but that's just in passing. Notice, everyone, that time is already absolutely crucial to this whole investigation by Rousseau. Time uh, and the passage of time. Again, something I think that Rousseau adds to uh, the great tradition of seeking the, uh, the fundamental nature of man. The passage of time then has rendered uh, man's nature almost unrecognisable, but not quite, not totally unrecognisable. So how then are we going to peel back all these accretions that the passage of time has wrought on the, uh, uh, the inner nature um, of man? In the preface to the discourse, you'll find Rousseau being extraordinarily cautious and showing an extreme so, uh, awareness of the trickiness of posing this question. And uh, if, you, if you read it, you'll find that there's a constant running criticism of previous uh, 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 authors, including nearly all the natural law, uh, the most recent natural law writers like Puffendorf and, uh, and uh, Barberac and so on, but also, so to speak, behind them a, a criticism of, of uh, Hobbes. Note, this isn't a crude criticism of Hobbes, that Hobbes sort of gets things wrong, that Hobbes thinks that man is aggressive when he's not aggressive, not uh, that kind of thing, but that Hobbes has failed, so to speak, to get back deep enough to get to the essence uh, that we're trying to look for. So you remember that Hobbes, and uh, this is also uh, memorable to us from this morning's wonderful lecture by Professor Furedi, Hobbes gives us various demonstrations of how he reaches his account of man. And he, his demonstrations are things like this, um, what happens when the police go on strike? Um, uh, what happens in international law? In these sort of cases, there is no sovereign, and then as it were, the uh, aggressiveness of man uh, comes to the fore. Not because man is particularly aggressive by nature, but ju that's just how things uh, inevitably will happen, absent uh, a proper enforcement agency. Rousseau thinks that this doesn't get deep enough. This, so to speak, for Rousseau, is simply a question of examining social man then trying to isolate certain features of social man to see where uh, his uh, core nature um, uh, resides. So, so uh, extract number four. I began um, some lines of reasoning. Um, I ventured some conjectures, uh, less in the hope of uh, resolving the question than uh, simply with the intention of clarifying it. And... Uh, reducing um, the, the, the whole question to its genuine state, for it is no light matter uh, to separate uh, what is original in man uh, from what is artificial um, in uh, the present nature of man, and uh, to know correctly um, 
uh, uh, to know correctly, um, a state. And then he, as it were, hyperly then makes it all almost completely conjectural. A state that perhaps never existed, um, which probably never will exist, and nonetheless about which it is necessary um, to have the most uh, precise, the, the, the most precise notions in order to judge our present state uh, correctly. You, you note his caution, you note his, how his intense awareness of how difficult the task is. Well, the discourse on the origin of inequality divides up into two parts, as you'll discover. Part one is devoted to discovering this purely natural man. And here Rousseau sets himself the question, uh, extract number five, what experiments would be necessary uh, to um, achieve knowledge of uh, natural man? And uh, what are the means for uh, making those experiments in the midst of society? You see the, the intensity of this questioning, this self-questioning. And you may think that somehow the whole question is crazy. But of course it's not. In the natural sciences, we find it going on all the time. In things like, in disciplines like archaeology, where, of course, all we have is what we have right now, and from that we can make inferences to what uh, things must have been like, such that we have the artefacts that we have here now. Even if you like deep cosmogony, all we have available to us is evidence from uh, astronomy which is evidence of how things were n billion years uh, ago, n billion light years ago. And yet from that, we are able to reconstruct, so to speak, from the present to what is in the past. So this is, so to speak, an experimental approach, as Rousseau saw it. And uh, insofar as this is a human science, um, we'll find uh, Rousseau constructing a model uh, a theoretical model. And um, in the discourse, you'll find Rousseau constructing this model of the human being. The human being stripped of, if you like, all social relationships whatsoever. You'll see once again in passing how, of course, he has a, an implicit criticism of predecessors like Hobbes, who, uh, uh, as he sees it, failed to do that. And it seems to me that ab in the absence of empirical evidence, in the absence of the kind of evidence that one gets from, from archaeology and, of course, from uh, a later uh, evolutionary theory, um, Rousseau uh, argues that what an immense period of time must separate these uh, primitive creatures who he's talking about from their modern socialised descendants. That is, if you like, the histoire raisonnée, the reconstruction of history, of how things, it must have taken that long in order for this extraordinary change to have taken place. And, as I say, the whole of part one of the discourse is devoted to uh, constructing this model, this model of the holy, uh, a non-socialised man, the pre-social pre human being, if you like. The 
experimental laboratory is what Rousseau calls the forest. And pre-social man inhabits the forest, and the forest is, uh, if you like, relatively benign. In other words, it provides enough sustenance for human beings to survive without the need for uh, cooperation. This is what Rousseau calls repeatedly the pure state of nature. And he, as I say, he locates uh, human beings in it in the forest. Um, It's vast, as I say, relatively hospitable to human beings so that men can survive without having to form cooperative uh, groups in order to uh, 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 achieve that sustenance. Um, And the isolation of human beings, he thinks, is pretty much absolute and total. Sexual encounters are uh, relatively rare, and they are extremely short-lived. They don't... uh, Give, uh, they're not uh, sufficiently durable to give rise to any serious uh, family relationships or kinship relationships. And here he diverges radically from John Locke and devotes a whole and rather detailed um, note to criticising uh, Locke's uh, thought that the family is a natural feature of human beings. All that Rousseau finds, at least explicitly, uh, in uh, human beings um, in the pure state of nature, the uh, uh, characteristics are listed in uh, uh, extract number six, and they are self-preservation and compassion, numbers one and two, if you like. Compassion, uh, he defines as an innate innate repugnance to see a fellow creature suffer. Those two first ones, self-preservation and compassion, he thinks we we share with other other, uh, animals. Uh, The second and third, uh, free will and what he calls perfectibility, the ability of one generation to learn from the experience of another, thus uh, uh, producing, uh, as it were, progress, um, these, according to uh, Rousseau, are unique to Homo sapiens and uh, other uh, uh, creatures don't have them. In addition to those four, which he mentions explicitly in uh, the part one of the uh, uh, discourse, we can begin now to think about amour propre, a, t- a term which is crucial to Rousseau's moral psychology and will be developed at great length in the Emile, but we'll find a kind of fleeting references to it already in uh, 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 the uh, discourse on uh, inequality. But it, along with uh, uh, humans' uh, free will and uh, perfectibility, these remain, as it were, virtual or dormant in the, in the pure state of nature. They await socialization. Uh, in order to be triggered. You'll see uh, extract number seven, uh, this not, uh, amour propre, not named by name, but there it is. Um, it, this is, comes from right at the end, actually, of the discourse, but I think it's a rather snappy uh, 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 comment. The savage lives within himself. The sociable the social man 
always outside of himself, knows how to live uh, only in the opinion of others. And it is, so to speak, from their judgment that he derives the sentiment of his own existence. The sentiment of his own existence. As it were, the savage, where we're invited to think, uh, is not aware of himself as existing. I mean, he, he just exists, is the thought. So that then is part one of the discourse, this kind of rich and detailed picture which Robert Wachler in his wonderful uh, essay, Perfectible Apes, uh, makes us think that uh, Rousseau, like other people of the time, was very struck by travellers' tales of the orangutan. And uh, there was considerable debate going on at the time whether the orangutan and uh, possibly other higher primates were actually just different kinds of human beings. People weren't sure. The idea of evolution had not, as we know, come online until, until Darwin, but there were, so to speak, anticipations of it, kind of uh, teeterings on the brink of it. But other versions were not that we evolved from the apes, but rather that apes might just be rather peculiar uh, 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 human beings who we just didn't know how to talk to. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I'm much persuaded by Robbie Wattler uh, that uh, there the, the could well be a, a bit of that in the, um, in, in the uh, account of, of man in, in this pure state of nature. Well, that then is part one. The move from part one to part two gets us from the pure state of nature into the beginnings of the first steps into society. And um, in our, uh, the, the little set of extracts that you've got, you'll find the diagram with the circles, which I'll uh, explain a little bit about in a moment. Um, it's going to illustrate the uh, progress of, uh, hum of uh, mankind out of the forest uh, into society. But we'll, uh, I'll try to explain a little bit more what's going on in there. Extract number eight in the pure state of nature, uh, there was uh, uh, neither education nor progress. Um, the generations multiplied uh, endlessly, uh, each generation always starting from the same point. Uh, the pure state of nature then um, would have reproduced itself forever had it not been for interruptions interruptions by catastrophic external events. Those circles are designed to illustrate this self-reproducing uh, uh, processes which would go on forever. They're a little bit uh, uh, schematic because as we go along the line from left to right, they will become less uh, uh, self-reproducing and the externality of the catastrophic events bringing about the change to the next uh, uh, stage will become rather less uh, marked. They will be, become... The, 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 but but the, the, the essence of the diagram is, is that. Um, in particular, I think that uh, extract number eight um, uh, tells you precisely what we are supposed to understand of the uh, model of the pure state of nature, um, the forest. With the um, 
uh, external, uh, uh, th these great contingent external events. Um, uh, it, human beings, in order to survive, um, could no longer live in isolation. And the uh, move along the diagram from the far left um, to uh, number one, which is the first uh, move into the, the process of socialization, um, is uh, it triggered by climatic events, uh, long hot summers, the uh, brutally cold winters, and uh, so on. And so it will go on. The crucial catastroph catastrophic event which triggers us out of the forest is that first one. Thereafter, things will uh, respond to other uh, external events. Um, and so um, the discovery of um, some uh, a kind of hatchets um, of hard, uh, sharp stones that would allow uh, men uh, to make uh, huts um, uh, from branches, we're going to be told. So that will get us uh, then along the next um, stage in the, on the line. Now, when we reach that stage, which Rousseau is going to call the youth of the world, you'll see that in uh, number nine, uh, this uh, period of the development of uh, uh, human uh, uh, faculties, uh, maintaining a golden mean uh, between the, uh, uh, the indolence of the uh, primitive state and the petulant activity of amor prop, must have been the happiest and uh, most uh, durable uh, epoch. It must have been the best, uh, the, the, the least subject to revolutions, the best uh, for man. And that's what uh, Rousseau calls uh, the youth of the world. And during this time, and I've illustrated that a little uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, perhaps naughtily with a, uh, a couple of photographs you'll see there, taken actually by Lévi-Strauss himself, if you can imagine, in the 1930s. Um, I think, I think Lévi-Strauss was actually... It, we are told, I, I heard this just very recently, that Lévi-Strauss was actually persuaded by reading the Second Discourse to do his first expedition to the Amazon, which is, uh, tells you something about uh, the power of reading great texts. Uh, and there they are. Um, uh, these are, I think, what uh, Lévi-Strauss uh, Lévi somewhat uh, uh, romantically thought uh, were uh, inhabitants of the youth of the world um, uh, in, the, in the Amazon. Remember, back in the pure state of nature, there was not even any language, properly speaking, perhaps grunts, perhaps cries, but no nothing until man uh, came to be settled. And then, during this period, the youth of the world, language developed, became more articulate, uh, romantic love finally made its appearance, um, young people, I quote, of different sexes, start to form uh, preferences for one another. And if you like, in that sense, uh, Amoprop uh, shows itself again. Um, so uh, we're well into the route to society by the time we get to that. Rousseau talks about dancing and singing in front of the huts um, or around a large tree. Um, uh, 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 tender, sweet feelings which would arise, uh, but always there's the, uh, the, there's the um, worm in the bud. All of this could too swiftly turn 
into discord and jealousy, as he sees it. But this, at least, was as he, as he wants to see it. And here, and I think here alone, it's correct to talk about Husserl being romantic. I think the term romantic does not apply to Husserl in any uh, useful sense at all. Uh, I think he was, on the whole, brutally realistic. Um, but perhaps he had a certain sort of uh, 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 romantic uh, attraction to this um, perhaps uh, fanciful notion of the youth of the world, but certainly one that he would have learnt about from travellers' tales at the time. So here we are then in the youth of the world, what we could call the Stone Age. Um, the next uh, stage then from two to three, um, and uh, like uh, previous uh, uh, dramatic uh, changes, this one was uh, triggered by chance discovery, uh, this time of metallurgy, and uh, settled agriculture, people suddenly discovered how uh, he, he hypothesizes, possibly from having seen volcanoes, how to forge uh, uh, um, uh, metal, and by just simply observation, saw how, a crop, how wild crops reproduced themselves and then began to, um, to cultivate them. Uh, and this uh, uh, now uh, this stage uh, brings with it a quite radical and now increasingly fast changes. Inequalities begin to build up. Those who are in possession of the vital raw materials uh, and the uh, the, the um, uh, uh, fertile uh, lands become richer and can hold those who do not possess these um, uh, uh, to, to ransom, if you like. Um, and so uh, what we get in this stage um, is uh, a, basically a, a something like what uh, Rousseau will call a state of war, not quite Hobbes' state of war, but it has something in common with Hobbes' state of war because we have social relations going, we have inequalities going, but we have no settled uh, sovereign power and no uh, proper legal system. Um, and so this goes from uh, 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 stage uh, three to stage four, uh, the, uh, the transition to the, uh, to the um, state of war um, in which there is uh, increasing uh, uh, inequality and increasing violence as well um, as a kind of uh, somewhat anarchic political order um, uh, uh, based on, as it were, warlords um, sets in. It lacks all kind of legitimacy uh, and is... Uh, likely at any moment to uh, break down into civil war. Um, so then, next stage from uh, four to five, um, this brings us into what Rousseau calls civil society, properly speaking. And that this stage will be based, as Rousseau sees it, on a recognition that this kind of disorder can't uh, go on, and some form of more settled political order must be set up. And it's based on a form of contract. 
not the good social contract of the book of that name by Rousseau, but a kind of rough-and-ready contract um, in which the rich uh, uh, managed to um, uh, uh, con the poor into agreeing to certain kinds of, of political order um, in order, to, uh, so to speak, to preserve themselves from this uh, uh, constant um, uh, uh, risk of breaking down into uh, anarchy. Um, it's a kind of tacit social contract, um, but the system as a whole um, is based on deceit, as Rousseau sees it. Um, it's being devised by the rich, um, uh, pressed by necessity, um, who finally conceived what he calls uh, the most um, uh, deliberate pro project um, that ever entered um, the human mind. And that's Rousseau's um, uh, judgment, really, on the present uh, uh, order of things that we have now. Um, uh, the trick um, was to persuade uh, the gullible uh, common people um, to uh, sign up to uh, some kind of constitution purportedly uh, to, pre to uh, protect uh, the, um, the weak from, uh, from oppression and to uh, restrain the, to restrain the ambition of uh, the, the strong. But in fact, as Rousseau sees it, um, it brought about quite the opposite. Um, the modern state, as he sees it, it precisely protects uh, the interests of the rich uh, while systematically um, uh, disempowering uh, the poor. So that then is um, today's uh, civil society um, a wholly pessimistic judgment uh, that Rousseau, Rousseau passes on it um, and we're really given no uh, account within uh, the second discourse of how this uh, as it were uh, uh, plutocratic um, uh, 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 and entirely disordered uh, uh, social order um, uh, it could be uh, reformed. Um, what he thinks is, and you'll find this in uh, number 10, is that uh, uh, the um, discontent uh, um, reaches boiling point, as he sees it, and uh, this all ends by the strangling um, or uh, uh, dethroning of the, of the sultan, um, which is as lawful an act um, as uh, that uh, by which he, the sultan, uh, disposed uh, the day before of the lives and uh, goods of uh, his subjects. Um, uh, this somewhat dramatic and sudden uh, sort of denouement to the thing, which you really weren't quite expecting in this, uh, this text, um, uh, 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 you'll see that it's expressed in sort of orientalist terms. Uh, we're meant to think that this is a sultan uh, with his harem, uh, whereas, of course, uh, we're really meant to think that this is the ancien regime of France, but uh, Rousseau is somewhat uh, uh, too diplomatic to put it too, so crudely. Um, within the second discourse, where I then, on my little diagram... I give a final stage, which would be the good social contract and the envisaged society of the future. 
but within the second discourse and within the model of man, the, the, uh, the philosophical anthropology that we're presented with in that text, we're not given really any account of how one might uh, go from the one to the other. So, dear friends, that's my rapid, super uh, uh, swift um, journey through the second discourse. Uh, I know I'm running a little bit over time, but if I could say just now a few words about the Emile, because that will give us um, my, what I think is this rather nice, uh, double, uh, double optic um, of, uh, uh, of, of, of uh, philosophical model building, um, in which the Emile is the other uh, a great example, I think. It uh, purports to be, it's entitled Emile or on Education, published in 1762, the same year as the social contract. And uh, I think many commentators would regard it as uh, Rousseau's philosophical masterpiece. Um, it's uh, a, an extraordinarily rich text um, which uh, repays uh, a, a, a really close reading. It's, however, it, pretty long. It's five long books, um, unlike the Discourse of Inequality, which is uh, relatively snappy. Um, but uh, the, the Emil does repay uh, a, a, a close reading. Uh, as I see it, and as one of the best English language commentators, Nicholas Dent, I think has demonstrated, uh, the Emile is really uh, unified by its account of amour propre. Um, we have another uh, laboratory test, and this time, you remember, in the second discourse, humanity as a whole was located in the forest as our experimental lab. This time, the single young boy, the baby, coming through to childhood, through to adulthood, um, is kept in isolation, complete isolation, under the, uh, 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 the educational input of his tutor. Um, and uh, the function of the tutor, uh, Rousseau tells us, is at least at first um, negative. It is to... to foster the negative education. In particular, it is to keep amour propre at bay. Uh, the child must, above all, be kept from contact with the corrupting social world and interaction with it for, as he sees it, as long as possible. Um, you remember that uh, amour propre, uh, we've already seen, has made its first appearance in the youth of the world, and you'll remember that there, too, it already is likely to become petulant. And if it becomes petulant, then it will descend into jealousy, into exploitation, and the kind of uh, uneasy um, uh, uh, non-equilibrium between domination and servitude. What one is looking for is recognition in the eyes of others. That, so to speak, is the crucial part of what it is to come from childhood to adulthood. And indeed, 
in some occasions, to be preferred to others, uh, to understand and to learn what love is, of course, is to learn what it is to be loved more uh, than others by the one uh, uh, who, with whom one is in love. And that uh, also uh, is, I think, again, a, a delicate and um, extremely interesting, um, uh, 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 we find within him, an extremely interesting attempt to theorize that uh, in, in an informal fashion. So, um, what we are, um, are, are going to be doing, says Rousseau, is to, so to speak, in this quite artificial and, uh, 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 so to speak, pretend uh, 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 experimental lab of the um, uh, restricted household, the child will be um, uh, educated at first in this entirely uh, negative fashion, but then gently being introduced to the various subjects which he will be able to acquire as he, uh, uh, as he grows up, and in particular um, his access to the moral world, which will become, go very, very gently and very uh, um, in, in, in carefully measured timing. And once again, I mentioned time as the crucial key to the uh, discourse on inequality. Ditto timing is crucial to the educational program of the Emile. Again, I, I tend to think that this is something that Rousseau was perhaps more aware of almost than any previous writer, at least any previous writer that I'm, I'm, I, I, I know. Um, book, again, uh, very much as with uh, the, the second discourse, um, opens with uh, the striking words you'll find in uh, extract number 11. Everything is good as it comes from the hands of the author of things. Everything degenerates uh, uh, in the hands of uh, men. Um, the degeneration process, which we've seen uh, taking place to humanity as a whole in the second discourse in part two, um, after the youth of the world, we will now see the efforts that the tutor makes to prevent that happening um, in, in the individual uh, child. What uh, Rousseau will eventually think that the uh, tutor will produce is, uh, you'll see in extract number 12, a savage made fit for urban life. That's my rather free translation of Un sauvage fait pour habiter les villes. A savage made to live in, in the cities. So Emile will eventually not be um, a, a, a savage, a pure savage. He won't be a pure solitary, unable to, re to relate to other people. But um, he will be uh, a, a one who maintains his ability for autonomy and self-direction however deeply uh, involved he becomes in uh, his final adult um, social life. He will always be, to a certain extent, an outsider because uh, he will simply be the, the savage made to inhabit the cities. And for that reason, the, uh, we'll have seen the uh, tutor uh, exercising the negative education, um, who the ne ne negative education being designed... Um, to uh, prevent, uh, to um, uh, secure the heart uh, from vice 
and the uh, mind from error rather than to uh, uh, induct um, uh, uh, anything positive um, at these early stages. As I say, the notion of timing is the crucial one. He, the pupil will, so to speak, be released into society uh, only when uh, he becomes capable of handling it. Um, up till then, as you'll see in th- extract 13, he is alone um, uh, in uh, human society. Um, he counts on himself alone. Amor propre, the first and uh, most uh, natural of all uh, the passions, is scarcely aroused in him. You'll see that we're told that Amor propre is natural, but it's, as with free will and perfectibility, it is merely a virtuality. It's merely present in its dormant form until it comes to be aroused. And then the crucial thing is to have it, so to speak, cultivated so that it does not descend into um, this game, this constant game of exploitation of domination and servitude. And uh, for uh, those of us who have been through the uh, business of raising our own children, there's many a canny uh, bit of advice from Rousseau you'll find in the book. Um, In particular, he thinks that in early years, it's pointless to keep arguing with children and um, uh, uh, at points when they really don't have the clue what you're meant to be arguing about. And... um, I often sort of, when I I sit on the bus and I hear um, these uh, arguments going on between the parents and their children, I think of Jean-Jacques and wish they would read it. Um, It's just, there's just no point, says Jean-Jacques, until you reach the age of reason. There's no no point reasoning, but that's my view. Uh, (laughs) Empirically uh, confirmed, and now a third generation. Anyway... um, so, uh, dear friends, I'm almost, almost at the end. I, uh, just just a, 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 a moment or two more. Um, and you, as I say, you'll, you'll see much of uh, uh, book one of the Emile is devoted to precisely that. Um, so, um, if you want to uh, find the most extended treatment of, of uh, Amor Prop, uh, you'll find it uh, in book four of the Emile, which is uh, as Emile comes to um, adolescence and when uh, the tutor can make full, play, full use of Amor Prop. Um, and it's interesting that um, uh, Husso actually was not entirely confident. He, he thought that the, just as he was full of misgivings about the progress, progress in quotation marks of humanity, so too he was by no means confident that his program would actually succeed. And he wrote two sequels to the Emile, uh, or rather a single sequel, but with uh, two different endings that he, he produced to it, called uh, Emile et Sophie ou les, ou les solitaires, uh, Emile and Sophie are the solitary ones, and that shows what happens when they become adults. Uh, Emile and Sophie go to Paris, 
Sophie uh, falls into bad company and a, a dreadful denouement takes place. So um, uh, Rousseau is, is not, there, there's always contingencies. There is no, there is no guarantee that the, um, that the program will work. But that is the essence of the program. It's a program which is based on, as it were, uh, defensive mechanisms to keep uh, the child from corruption, and then the careful monitoring and guiding of amour propre. One very last, literally my last little extract, just um, uh, for, uh, extract number 14, which is from a, uh, a, a, a posthumously published uh, text called the Lettre Morale, um, and that shows that amour propre, in a way, plays a role in our knowledge of ourselves. Um, you remember the sentiment of, the, of our existence that we had in the Second Discourse. And there Rousseau says, we see neither the self um, of, uh, of the other uh, because it hides itself, nor our own because we have no mirror in, in the mind. We have no mirror in the mind. So we have no direct access to ourselves. We, in a sense only grow to know who we are by our interactions with other people. Again, I think an extremely um, early anticipation of that um, deep and profound uh, truth. And, of course, Rousseau, because of his um, recurringly pessimistic view of things, reckons that the only way that we will be able to um, uh, gain some kind of mirror into ourselves through others will be by interacting with other people who are also more or less our equals and also people of, of, um, uh, of uh, good, uh, good character, as it were, that our whole, even our knowledge of ourselves and the constitution of ourselves, that in turn is dependent always and essentially on others and on our interaction with them. I think enough. Thank you very much indeed, your attention. Can I just say that I'm sure for those of us who've been um, caricaturing, I speak for myself, (laughs) for me, who have been caricaturing Rousseau for some time, that was really good, Um, and uh, gave us a lot to think about, and really delighted, and it was very clear, and um, I think we'll all be mulling it over a lot, and I suspect you'll be mobbed at dinner. Um, But do give him a break. Can we give him a round of applause, please? Thank you very much.